I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. We may have missed the holiday by a couple of weeks, but this episode is Labor Day on our show. We're working with a panel of experts to take an in-depth look at the labor market. Three experienced pros with interesting perspectives on the state and future of the workforce. There is simply nothing more important to our customers than labor and access to talent. That's Stephen Hussein of Prologis, a global logistics enterprise that handles more than $2 trillion worth of goods a year, that's trillion with a T, while taking an innovative approach to labor at its facilities. Stephen joins us from Dallas. We're also joined by two of CBRE's leaders in analyzing how labor interacts with real estate. Obviously, the labor piece is going to be absolutely critical to, to figuring out the location. That's Mark Seeley, Executive Vice President of our Labor Analytics Group. What we're seeing is really a repivot towards um, focusing on cost containment and rationalizing their portfolio. So what are the economies that are driving their business? How can they identify locations that are going to best serve them through the pandemic and more importantly, on the way forward? And that's Senior Managing Director Kristen Sexton. Based in Phoenix, she and Mark have advised literally thousands of companies across a variety of sectors on key workforce practices. Commercial real estate and the labor market, that's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and this week we're talking about labor with three of the world's leading labor experts. Our first is Stephen Hussein, the Director of Community Workforce at ProLogis. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great to have you. And the second two are two great friends of mine and colleagues that run our labor analytics group, Kristen Sexton. Kristen, welcome. Thanks for having us today. And Mark Seeley. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice as well. So let's ask one general question to begin. We're all here in the real estate business. Why are we talking about labor? Starting with you, Stephen. There is simply nothing more important to our customers than labor and access to talent. Kristen, why are we talking about labor? Well, I would say labor is the most important driver in most corporate location strategies, and it makes up about 70 to 80 percent of most labor costs for our office tenants and somewhere upwards of 40 to 60 percent of our industrial clients. So incredibly important to get it right. And Mark, why are we talking about labor? It's just the greatest enabler for our clients' businesses. Getting talent, getting the right skills, the cost component, it's critical. Before we dive in deeper, Stephen, let's take a step back so our audience can get to know Prologis. So tell us who you are and what you do. Prologis is the world's leader in logistics real estates. You know, we today have over 960 million square feet in our portfolio. We operate in 19 countries and four continents. My focus is thinking about talent pipelines and talent solutions for our customers. Uh, and how can we help equip them with the supports and the solutions that we can bring to the table from being really long-term investors in communities? Um, number one pain point we hear from them constantly is access to qualified talent and labor. So I work with them throughout the U.S. and then globally to think about really what are the pipelines that we can be developing with community-based organizations, nonprofits, government institutions, uh, and really beef that up over time. Let me just stay with you for one second, Stephen. I know that Times are tough for so many people right now, but you have a large target of number of people you want to train. How many is that? Yeah, over the next five years, we want to help train and upskill 25,000 individuals to enter the logistics industry uh, and really connect them with their customers. That's amazing for a couple of reasons. One, it's a big number. But second, it's very unusual that the landlord is looking to train people rather than the tenant. Tell us how that came about. 
first and foremost, we don't view ourselves as just a landlord, right? We, we want to be up more than four walls and a roof. We want to bring solutions to them that go much beyond that and have real customer relationships with them. Uh, and the genesis of, of what we're doing here with the Community Workforce Initiative comes from real customer conversations and saying, how can we help you in more than just creating kind of world-class real estate for you? And the solution came forward that what they really need help with is access to talent. Uh, and so, you know what, we just hit the ground running and said, we're going to find a way to do that. And, and uh, the rest is history. Shifting gears. Let's talk more about what's happened since the pandemic. And clearly pre-COVID-19, there was a labor shortage everywhere across the country. So starting with you, Mark, how has the pandemic changed the labor business? Going into the pandemic, we were at, at 50-year lows. The national unemployment in February was 3.5%. Over the last five years prior to the pandemic, you know, Kristen and I and our team were exceedingly busy, focused on helping clients access certain specialized skills, right? Certainly the technology sector uh, was keeping us very busy. The industrial sector was also keeping us quite busy, sort of on the other end of the extreme as, you know, e-commerce continued to expand. We were seeing lots of competition in these sort of concentrated supply chain pockets. Um, then the pandemic comes, you know, we reach, I don't know what, 14, 15% uh, unemployment at one point nationally. Certainly some things have changed, but many of these specialized skills, both in the industrial sector and in the technology space, are as if not more sought after than before. So uh, we're still quite busy. We are seeing for many of our clients a shift towards sort of refocusing on the cost component of labor. And so, you know, as many of the sectors that we work through are going through some difficult economic times and, and really looking at their bottom line, we are seeing, I would say, a refocus on uh, where there might be some labor cost arbitrage plays and opportunities to reduce their bottom line. So I think similar to what Mark just shared, what we're seeing is an acceleration of trends in certain industries that are high growth. So looking at what is going on right now in industrial and e-commerce, there's definitely a continued acceleration in scale. The tech industry is continuing to grow in many different portions. When you look at the rest of the sectors, what we're really seeing is a pivot towards um, focusing on cost containment and rationalizing their portfolio. So what are the economies um, that are driving their business? How can they identify locations that are going to best serve them through the pandemic and more importantly, on the way forward? But you have to pick the markets for the right industry. And it's not always as simple as a lot of college graduates. It could be different factors. Tell us how you pick the right market for your clients, Kristen. Yeah, that's a great question. To your point, it really does need to be specific by each client. And it's not even as specific as each industry or sector. It really needs to get down to what is the company trying to accomplish? What are the major drivers and objectives of that business and what they're trying to hire for. So from a labor perspective, the very first thing we do is we look at what are the skill sets that that client is trying to hire for, what scale are they trying to achieve in those skill sets. An approach for a, a 150 person call center is going to be very different than even a 2000 person call center. Same skill sets, different sized markets, different scalability needs, and it's also going to drive a different cost solution for that client regarding the wages that they're going to need to pay and the expensiveness of those markets. When you think about an industrial perspective, the same thing. So Kristen, let's get a little bit more specific. Do you have a case study or two that you can point to of how you directed a client to a city because it was right for them and another one that wasn't? I think a great example, especially as we're talking about industrial right now, was a particular client we were working for that required about 2 million square feet for a fulfillment center. 
And within that fulfillment center, they needed to employ about 2,000 employees. And when we first met with them, they were very focused in on some rural areas of Pennsylvania, which for a smaller distribution center would be an excellent opportunity and within their logistics envelope. The problem that we encountered when looking at it was that the labor force was simply not large enough to support their needs for those 2,000 employees. They would have always come up short on their employment. They really needed to focus in on a larger labor market. And so we looked at that same logistics envelope from a supply chain perspective and realized that within that area, the Columbus area of Ohio fit within their supply chain needs and had the size and scale of workforce that they required. It had the right mix of skill set that they were looking for, and it had multiple real estate opportunities that also fit their needs. From there, we actually got down to a site-level basis and started evaluating the specific sites and which of those gave them the greatest access to an available workforce and helped drive the real estate decision all the way down to a local decision based on the labor market. It saved them millions, and it saved them a lot of headache and productivity issues with not being able to fully staff a workforce. So, Stephen, back to you. Uh, 25,000 jobs, that's a lot of jobs. And let's talk about the origin of this. When did that idea come to the fore, and how has the pandemic changed or accelerated it? Yeah. So, Prolog just started thinking about the Community Workforce Initiative about two years ago from customer conversations, as I said. And if you look at the logistics industry, I mean, it's just growing like gangbusters, hundreds of thousands of jobs being created, uh, continues to grow. And, and what we have seen through the pandemic is just accelerated growth in many of our customers. Uh, and the need for talent has grown. Uh, and despite high unemployment numbers, the availability of that labor just hasn't changed much. Uh, and so what we started doing two years ago was really thinking about how can we act as a supplemental resource to our customers, right? Because many of them have terrific training and development programs already. They have great hiring initiatives. But how can we support them even further with what we were doing and thinking about building out pipelines over the long term for them? And also thinking about how do you actually build career pathways within the industry and think about upward economic mobility for individuals entering the sector as well. So that was work that we started two years ago. And core to that was thinking about how do you do that digitally? How do you actually use the latest technologies in learning and development, hiring solutions, online solutions? We were thinking about that two years ago. And... We thought it would be slower to be adopted, frankly, and what we have seen through the pandemic is now everybody is shifting to online learning, and we have been very well positioned to deploy those types of solutions with them. One of the challenges we have here in the U.S. is that we have a relatively high cost of labor. So, Mark, how do you deal with that issue when you're dealing with a multinational corporation and they have a choice of coming here to the U.S. or going to Mexico or Canada or someplace else? Yeah, so it depends on the type of operation, the type of skills, right? If we're talking about... Uh, you know, more of a knowledge worker, an office user, a, a technology focused company, they've got a lot more flexibility in terms of where they can locate because they're not necessarily limited by the supply chain. At the same time, some of those highly, highly specialized technology skills, machine learning, AI development, you know, those are, are tough skills to find anywhere and do typically lend themselves uh, to a lot of U.S. markets, right? On the industrial side, things change quickly, right? Certainly the supply chain, the distribution centers have to be in the U.S. and even more so have to be within certain sort of major supply chain markets because of the transportation corridors in the U.S. But obviously what we've seen on the manufacturing side is there's a lot more flexibility to where those can locate and cost is always and I think still is a huge driver in the location of manufacturing sites. Supply chain is a factor. There's a lot of other considerations, but cost is still 
uh, you know, if not the, certainly one of the top three major considerations with, with location. And that's why, you know, we do see manufacturing sites where, you know, we're competing with Asian markets, we're competing with Latin American markets. There's a lot of talk now with COVID if, if some of those or many of those jobs and operations will come back. Um, you know, we will see. I think cost is still going to be a big factor. I think we will start to see some companies diversify at least regionally, right? So instead of having uh, maybe all of their eggs in a market like China, perhaps they do diversify their risk. But does that mean they will come to Texas or, or Alabama? I think it's more likely that it may be that they uh, diversify within the region, um, you know, go to Malaysia, go to Vietnam. So, Stephen, there is no company that's bigger than Prologis in the international ownership of real estate uh, all over the world. So there's no company that thinks about these issues more than Prologis in terms of cost and where I should put this facility. Talk to us for just a moment, uh, backing up from your community initiative to the international side of this. How do you think about that? Yeah, so so actually, I, I want to hit on the U.S. first because Kristen and Mark did a great job of talking about kind of the nuts and bolts of the cost analysis but the other thing to take into consideration is that these cities are all and communities are all very unique. The infrastructure of those communities in terms of the community infrastructure, the education system, the workforce system, the demographics and the needs are all very complex. So there's not a one size fits all approach that you can apply when you're talking about talent and labor. It's very complex. And you really see the same thing when you're talking about international, right? These locations, these communities, they must be taken into context uh, for what they are. And the assumptions that you may be able to just to pick up and move an operation across the border and think that you're going to get the same type of uh, infrastructure is just not really reality, right? So it's how do you think about that? And at the same time, we are thinking about CWI and our efforts internationally. Uh, we're working with a group right now in the UK to think about how we launch there, then looking at other parts of Europe and then Asia. We're preparing for Mexico. And what we find is, right, very different systems, um, very different approaches, and you have to take that into account when you're building these solutions out. It's not just a cost perspective, but it's also the talent needs are just going to be very, very different. I was on a call the other day with our incentives group, and they were saying, we got tons of manufacturers that want to come back to the U.S., but they don't have the skilled labor to do it. So perhaps starting with you, Mark, how do you handle that issue? Yeah, I mean, look, it is a concern. Um, again, it's going to come down to what is the talent and the skills that you need. Those technology workers are much more difficult, and some of the immigration reforms does make it you know, difficult. Getting those visas can be a real challenge for some of our technology clients. You know, if we're talking about more basic skilled assembly work, distribution warehousing, picker packers, while there certainly are challenges with availability, particularly as you start to get to more of the skilled labor like welders and such, what we see with many of our manufacturing clients is, yes, maybe there's some benefit to bringing these jobs back to the U.S., but how does a pencil at the end of the day? And can you know U.S. markets compete from a cost perspective with Latin America, with some of these Asian markets? And so I think we will and, and are seeing uh, greater interest in bringing jobs back to, to the U.S., but I also want to be real about some of the limitations when it comes to the, to the cost differentials. Well, automation might be a part of the solution. Uh, clearly, when you have a more highly automated center, you don't need as much labor. Uh, but at the same time, you'll have higher skilled labor. So there's a little bit of a give and take of the two. Kristen, why don't you walk us through how automation is changing your analysis of labor? It definitely changes the supply-demand equation. It drives the cost of the overall goods down. 
Um, it drives the cost and the scale of the labor that's required down. And with it, there is a skill gap and there's a trade-off between the jobs that are unfortunately displaced, but also the jobs that come with an increased in automation. Skilled labor that needs to tend to those machines, electricians, welders, um, there's a whole skilled workforce to maintain that automation that's in a very different level than what we're seeing where those displaced positions are. And so, you know, I look across the whole board of labor, whether it's on automation or what's happening right now with e-commerce and industrial, and there is such a large skill gap. Um, and we can see it so prevalent right now with the pandemic. We have um, record unemployment numbers, but if you ask any distribution center right now, they are not flooded with applications because the individuals that have been displaced through the pandemic do not have the natural skill set to go walk eight to 10 miles on concrete floors in a warehouse. Um, they're customer facing, client driven positions um, in hospitality, leisure, and retail. That's a very different skill set, a very different labor requirement from the workforce. Um, than what's needed in some of these growth areas in our economy. And so skill training, um, I think whether it be through um, programs like Stevens or local community colleges, local cities investing in these programs is going to be incredibly important going forward in the next 15, 20 years in educating our workforce in the areas that we're going to have um, supply demand gaps. Stephen, let's talk about automation from your program's perspective. How are you taking the automation question into consideration as you're trying to train your new employees? So first, I think, you know, what we see today from automation is that even the most heavily automated facilities actually require the most labor and talent. So there's this kind of uh, inverse relationship there that is surprising to some people. And I'm not one of those people who thinks that, you know, you're just going to see massive job displacement. You're going to see massive job change. And our position with the Community Workforce Initiative from the very beginning was, how do you help people not just for the job to today, but for the job of tomorrow? And how do you help get them those foundational skills that are necessary? You know, early on, as we were talking to customers with their incumbent workers, you know, one of the things they pointed out was a big challenge was just basic digital skills, really, really fundamental digital skills. And that's a gap that has to be closed as more technology enters these facilities and, and logistics becomes more complex over time. I would say to Kristen's point, the thing that concerns me the most is that the U.S. education and workforce system is not well positioned to do massive reskilling. And yet the type of work that we're going to see going forward is going to require massive reskilling. Uh, even today, you know, with the pandemic, as communities are thinking about reskilling, the system's just not ready for it. They cannot take the amount of people into the system, reskill them, and put them into jobs quickly enough, uh, let alone when you're talking about really, really significant automation coming down in 10 plus years. Well, let's talk about this reskilling question that Stephen brought up, Mark. How do you take into consideration the ability of a market to reskill, whether it's a community college or other group, that might be able to add to the labor supply? It's huge. When we're looking at a market, a market has to have the skills embedded, but all of our clients are looking forward about the skills they're going to need in five and 10 years, right? And so thinking about how the local community and the education systems and the programs that are in place to help people reskill and develop as that company needs, you know, additional and different skills is, is become, you know, a prominent uh, part of the decision matrix. Um, you know, when we think of manufacturing markets and we think of sort of the Southeast, right, um, which is really dominated across the U.S. in terms of, of manufacturing, lots of automotive, um, 
you know, one of the reasons that that part of the country has been so successful is because they have been ahead of the field in terms of some of the community developments, many of the things that Stephen is talking about, right? State level programs, training programs have been developed in states like Alabama are really forward leading and, and are exceptional. And, you know, in terms of our process, right, is we're working clients at a national level and we're working down to, you know, a, a shorter and shorter list. We eventually get to a phase where we're out touring those markets, right? And we have the client in tow. And that's when we can kick the tires on the community. We can meet with local economic developers. You know, we can meet with local employers. Much of that day is spent actually at the community college. Oftentimes, many of our meetings are planned there. Um, because we do want to hear about the training programs. And that is really where, you know, clients can really get a sense for not just what the market looks like today, but how it's going to be there to support their, their skill set needs on into the future. So it is absolutely front and center and, and really critical right now. Well, Kristen, Mark mentioned Alabama as a place that seems to be doing it right in terms of giving people the ability to upskill uh, for the skills required for the 21st century. Could you point to other markets that you think are doing it right in terms of upscaling employees for future jobs? Yeah, you know, there's no kind of cookie cutter model for any particular market. We have so many different skill sets that each um, city and, and state is really becoming well known for, and, and that really varies even across their metros and their rural areas, I think is something that's really critical to evaluate. But when you take the conversation even beyond the industrial manufacturing piece and just think about how does a city or a state start to develop a pipeline of labor and workforce? Um, how do they develop that pipeline? And I would say, you know, Kansas City is a phenomenal, um, you know, location that's really doing a lot in this area. So is um, Columbus. I love their programs and the investment that they've put into their community across a, a wide spectrum of skill sets and industry. They're focusing on their education systems, whether it be you know, four-year universities for the more professional skills, but also not forgetting those vocational skills that are really important for the upskilling needs. So those areas are really critical. They're investing in grants and training programs um, in order to help train up that workforce, especially when a company is coming in to invest in that market. And then they're attracting corporations that are training the talent for the market. So when you have all three of those cylinders firing, you have an economy that's really going to be well-balanced and diverse, that's going to drive a healthy level of competition and workforce and talent and really become a centralized hub of talent across several different areas. And at the end of the day, it's a matchmaking situation. We're trying to find through site selection and location strategy where are those workforces growing and developing and investing that are going to align with the companies that are also shifting their portfolios and locations to those markets? Stephen, what's your perspective? For us, it was important to start with communities in which we knew there was an infrastructure there that we could work with. And you see tremendous variability there between cities and communities. Uh, and in some places, we would essentially be building from scratch the very basic workforce development infrastructure that would be required, not just for logistics, but for other sectors as well. That was a big part of it. Uh, and, and Kristen and Mark both really hit on that well. There are communities who just do this better. And frankly, there are states that have prioritized this better than others. And you certainly see that from the customer sentiment as well. They know this as they're going around the country thinking about site selection. Where are the places in which they can operate effectively, recruit, train, develop, and grow talent long term? And uh, it, it has a big, big role. And so I think how the public sector engages with the private sector on this is going to be very important. And there's just some places that do it a lot better. 
let's go back to Mark for here for a second. Talk to me about how your labor analytics work is different for a client in the office or the retail sector. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a really interesting time right now for labor analytics, as, as you might imagine. So I talked a little bit earlier about um, just the sheer demand for, for talent and the shortage that we were running into going into this pandemic. In these sort of early months of that, um, you know, clients and, and corporations were very focused on getting people out of the office and trying to figure out how to get them back in. And, and they're still largely sort of focused in that area. Um, but we are starting to see clients now turn their head and think a little bit more strategically about their locations and how they may have changed or how their location strategy should change in a post-COVID world. One of the things we're starting to see and we're starting to, to consult our clients on is you know some early indications of student new migration patterns right because of you know what what this pandemic has meant to people in terms of you know working at home more often if not uh permanently um you know concern over infectious disease and some of those things what we're finding is um you know some of the trends we had already been seeing are being accelerated most notably um, you know, some migration patterns from some of these high cost markets into second tier locations where people can afford a larger house, maybe with an office, right? Afford a backyard, be in a, in a market where they have, you know, better quality of life at a, at a lower cost. I will emphasize that this is not by any means to suggest that markets like San Francisco and New York uh, are going to be ghost towns. I've, I've read some articles that suggest that, and I think it's ridiculous. These are going to remain vibrant urban centers with, I think, still the, the deepest base of, of specialized talent. But what it is uh, causing many of our clients to think through is maybe there are some new market opportunities that we wouldn't, you know, sort of previously have considered where we're seeing, you know, growth and talent migration into markets like Dallas and, and Denver and, and Atlanta, but also increasingly into that next tier. Kristen mentioned, you know, Kansas City, markets like Pittsburgh, where there's a deep base of technology talent. The point is, I think right now is a time for clients and companies to be sort of rethinking about their locations and, and adjusting based on potentially some new longer term trends that this that this is creating. So let me go now to the crystal ball question for each one of you. When we have our 200th episode of the Weekly Take and we have all three of you back a year and a half from now, Mark, when we look back on this, what do you think will be the fundamental change to the labor market? I think... Labor markets are going to be much more fluid. Uh, markets have opened up. Um, I think there's a spectrum here of people that are fully work from home and people are fully in the office. We're going to, I think, come somewhere towards the, you know, the side of working from home much more often, at least I would think 30%, maybe more. And I think that's going to drive more fluidity. I think we're already seeing it. Um, at the same time, I think companies are going to want to continue to encourage people to get back into the office uh, at least part of the time to drive culture, to train, to get people to learn that next new trick by working with their peers. I think that's really critical. Um, so I think there's going to be a balance. But I do think, you know, all in all, it's going to give a lot more optionality for people in terms of where they live, both within the metropolitan area as well as nationally. And I think generally that's a good thing for everyone. Well, Kristen, same question to you. Crystal Ball. 18 months, two years from now, looking back, what's the fundamental change? And do you agree with Mark's optimism that it will be a better place, uh, certainly than today? I think we could all agree with that. But from a labor perspective, a more flexible place. Well, I'm always a, a glass half full um, person, so I'm going to focus on the optimism for sure. 
I do think that we're in a very unique time right now that um, allows us and promotes the fluidity and flexibility of how we go about our days and how we go about work. This happened 15, 20 years ago. Can you imagine the disruption, right? But we have tools, we have mechanics around how we leverage our real estate, how we leverage our technology and connect with our workforce um, that we've never really been exposed to before. It's one of the greatest experiments of remote working we've ever seen. And it's combined with a time where you have a more agile co-work type workforce and real estate opportunity as well, where we can start to plan for more unknowns. We like to talk about the workforce and there's a generation here, one that is eager to learn from their peers and eager to learn from their mentors and wants to get in the office. They have not experienced a recession before. We also have a lot of companies that have never experienced a recession. And so as we're going through this, I think what we're seeing is those companies that have not experienced a recession and essentially grown in place because the speed of their growth has happened so quickly. My crystal ball there is we're going to see them adapt and become more flexible on a national location scale, global location scale, on where they put their operations and how they connect with top talent. When it comes to the industrial market, I think we're gonna to continue to see that accelerate and surge. We still have these hubs that we're going to have to figure out how do we um, refrain from cannibalizing and saturating these markets? What scale can they potentially um, grow? Is there going to be a shift in migration or supply chain in order to support those markets and centralization areas? You know, Those markets may be evolving workforce markets of the future. And then I think the pressure on costs is going to drive a lot more flexibility towards, you know, not only national markets where we can see a cost arbitrage for a variety of different types of skill sets and workforce, but also a use of their space and their assets in a flexible way, leveraging agile workspaces, leveraging more flexible workplace solutions, and leveraging more of a fluid model between home and the office. Stephen, last word to you. Same question with two twists. So number one, looking back two years from now, what does the labor market look like? Uh, but number two, how would you judge the Prologis labor program to be a success? And number three, I'm sure there's going to be lots of listeners who want to get into the program. Can you tell them about that as well? So I think looking two years back and looking to the, to the now and the present, uh, the labor market has just become more constrained. And I think actually 18 months from now, we will still see many of the industries that we talked about, not just industrial today, facing real labor shortages when it comes to skilled talent because the system shifts slowly. On the flip side, I think over the next 18 months, you're going to see tremendous innovation coming from employers to think about new ways to hire, new ways to adapt, new ways to source talent, and new ways to train and skill talent. And I think that's going to be really, really incredible going forward. I think that's going to be key for us. Uh, and if you want to look at uh, how we're going to be checking out uh, the CWI program, how we're going to continue to grow it, if you're interested in it, go to the Prologis.com website and you'll see our site uh, there. And uh, also feel free to reach out to me directly. Stephen. On behalf of CBRE and The Weekly Take, thank you and thank Prologis for being great friends and clients of ours, and thank you for this terrific community labor program that you're running. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us. No, thank you. This was fun. And Kristen and Mark, two of my great friends in labor analytics. Kristen, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Spencer. And Mark, thank you as well. Great to be here. Thanks, Spencer. For more information, go to CBRE backslash The Weekly Take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.